Welcome everyone to the 51st episode of the New Gen Mindset Podcast. I'm Dan Kozell here with Nick Tartaglia. What's going on, what, Nick? What's up, Daniel? I'm excited today, you? Uh, it's been an interesting week. Um, you know, our podcast is mainly focused on finance, entrepreneurship, macro themes. Um, yeah. The Montreal Canadiens lost in the Stanley Cup. Yeah, so I'm, exactly. I'm still wounding from that, but that's okay. We'll get over it. It was, it was quite a run. Mm-hmm. Um, but we have Italy. Just, we have Italy playing tomorrow. True, true. There's the Italians in Montreal that are going to be fired up for that. But anyway, we'll we'll we'll, we'll talk about that another time. But it's <laughs> it's a gorgeous day here today. Yeah, it's also a gorgeous day down uh, in Texas. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we've brought on a special guest here, Nick. But before we jump into that, yeah. um, just a little quick recap of the market this last this, this last week was pretty interesting. I mean, there yeah. was you know the ten year the ten year dropped to about 130 kind of spooked the market and the following day you had a correction um and then friday we finished off with a bang and surprisingly a lot of the junior mining stocks kind of took off so um i don't know what where where do you think we're heading right now definitely a new trend starting we i mean we've had a consolidation phase with definitely a healthy correction in the commodities and precious metal space. And plus this whole inflationary fear, although the federal reserve is saying that inflation is good, or at least Yellen is saying that. And uh, now we have, uh, we have a debt crisis where the, the uh, treasury is talking about how we don't have, uh, we need a debt ceiling increase in order to be able to cover our liabilities. And well, at least in the United States, but us being Canadian, you know, it kind of trickles back into us. So it kind of gives us fears here. So there's definitely risks that are starting to pile up, even though the general sentiment that at least the government makes it seem as if it's not that bad, but looking more on the long term for millennials and younger, it does seem to have quite an impact that the older generations don't seem to account for as much for that negative impact. Totally. So I think it's, it's a great time to kind of segue into our guest here because we're going to talk about this. This is pretty important. Um, the funniest thing I saw this week was a 2021 investor or long-term investor asking what's a bear market. Um, it was a funny (laughs) meme today. So without further ado, uh, this gentleman is the editor and publisher of goldsilverpros.com. Uh, it's a premium quality newsletter that emphasizes on long-term cycle investing in the precious metals market. And he's also the author of the 2010 book drop shadow, the truth about the economy. Uh, most of his work has been featured on many major financial publications, Yahoo Finance, MarketWatch, Nasdaq.com, Seeking Alpha, Stockhouse, Mining Feeds, GoldSeek, uh, Financial Sense, and Silver Doctors, among many other, others. Um, he's also got a former education, a master's degree uh, in information securities uh, and business admin and started in finance two decades ago. So he's seen a lot. Uh, and received his college degree in accounting, finance, marketing, and global business. Um, his main day-to-day pretty much consists of you know, comp- uh, trading Forex bonds, insurance stocks, as well as in the precious metals. And he's also got his own real estate company uh, where he's purchasing, uh, renting out, and managing a lot of real estate down in Texas. So welcome to the New Gen Mindset Podcast, Rob Keens. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me on. So, Listen, Robert, thanks so much, thanks yeah. so much for being here, um, Nick. I'll let you take it over from here, but we're really excited because there's a lot yeah, to talk about here. Exactly. Today. Um, so, Robert, just start off with the for 
the for the audience the people listening we just like to get a little history of the people we talk to where they come from what their what shaped their investment and uh financial economic philosophy uh any schools of thought in economics like uh classical liberalism uh and any cycles that you entered in that really shaped your perspective of the markets just just so we understand how you got to this point in time yeah, so I have about a 25-year history of, of working in technology. So I started off in IT and did consulting and cybersecurity for a long time. And I was working for one of the big four public accounting companies, Ernst & Young, back in 2009 and got laid off. And it was interesting because it, it was a time in which the expectations were very high, uh, but the realities were very different. And I learned very quickly that you had to plan for the future and you had to understand what was going on around you. Because, you know, I had a couple of college degrees. I was working at a big four public, account, public accounting firm, thought I had everything worked out. I just had our second child a couple of months before that in December. And everything was great. And then had the rug pulled out from under me. And uh, we just bought a house and it, it was kind of a big mess back then. And I had to figure things out. And so I, I decided to do, it took a long time to find another position uh, during, during those days. So what I decided to do is just start studying on the economy. And I'd done some work in finance previous uh, because I had a, a bachelor's in business and had been doing real estate for a long time. Real estate in Texas did very well. It's kind of what held me up, um, you know, while I was looking for another job. But it gave me a lot of time to study. And I, I came into uh, Austrian economics and it really resonated with me because it really more explained what was going on than what the mainstream economists had, had said. I think the mainstream economists, almost all of them to a T had missed the mortgage crisis. They had missed the tech crisis. They were continually, continually Pollyanna about the economy and always wrong and not calling the market cycles. And I, when I started reading Hayek and, and Mises and, and those guys, uh, I felt like they really had a beat on what was going on more than the Keynesians in the economy, uh, as, they're, as I now call them. So that was kind of my background in figuring out what, what was going on. And I decided to write a book just out of the blue. And I don't know what prompted me to do that, but I just felt like I had researched so much and been through so much that I need to tell the story. Uh, one of the engagements I was on when I was with Ernst & Young was an engagement with Morgan Stanley. And we actually got, uh, we got a batch of uh, loans that had gone into default. A lot of these loans had gone into default or were troubled loans. They were subprime mortgage loans. And on that project, it, it uh, the engagement was basically to fix them. So we had to take this 53,000 loan portfolio, figure out what was wrong and fix them. So I got really educated on what was going on in the mortgage industry really from the inside. And that alarmed me because I don't think a lot of people knew what was going on and really understood it. A lot of what was in the media was, was uh, trash information. It wasn't correct. It was either propaganda or speculation. So I wrote the book to, to educate people on how I felt like the economy really worked and, and uh, my learnings about Austrian economics and how I applied that to my own situation. And then from there, I just started writing. And, and that's just kind of what happened. I, I developed a love for writing about uh, economics and finance, even though my uh, professional background was in technology. Mm -hmm. And so I just kept writing and getting syndicated and, and eventually people pushed me over to my friends basically drugged me into social media and said, you got to get on social media. So I was more of the analyst and not, you know, a public personality. I'm very uh, not I'm not typically uh, outgoing in terms of being the guy that's going to get on YouTube and, and do that kind of thing. But I did it because I felt like people needed to, to know and understand. 
So what we run now is basically educational service on YouTube and, and to try to teach people, you know, our perspectives on the economy and, and why we're into gold and silver. Cool. It's, so- it's really, uh, it's really interesting. I mean, you, the subprime mortgage crisis for me personally, um, cause I, I only got into the industry about five years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I, when 08 happened, I was still in high school. I mean, I, I think Nick and I didn't even understand what was going on either, but I actually studied that crisis very, very closely. Mm-hmm. Um, and the one thing that alarmed me was the way the psychology of these investment banks were in terms of like, you know, getting really greedy. And then what's interesting is you just brought up, you were actually looking at these, you know, loans, they were probably CDOs, right? Credit default, uh, obligations mm-hmm. or credit default swaps. Um, can you just talk about like what kind of stood out in that particular moment? And then what was the biggest takeaway? Because everybody seems to have a very unique perspective mm-hmm. of that. But to me, what mm-hmm. was alarming was just the psychology of just, you know, rinse and repeat for most of these guys. Yeah, we basically called them the liar loans because a lot of those were undocumented income loans where they were just literally handing out money like it was candy. And the reason they were doing it is to perpetuate the business cycle. Um, When you get long in the business cycle and you're hunting for profits, you run out of people with good credit. And so you start distributing loans to people who shouldn't be able to afford them to keep this game going and to to keep having those sorts of returns. And also you get more defaults when you get longer into the economic cycle. So they were trying to cover defaults on existing loans by just issuing new ones. And what they would do was they would package up all this stuff. The rating agency would give it a good rating because they really didn't have insight into what was in it. And they created this derivative and sold it in tranches so that you never got to see the full portfolio. You get a piece of it. And they would even, we saw what they would even do is they'd use the same loan in multiple tranches to try to, the good loans to try to make them seem more appealing than they were. And on the back end, on the servicing part of it, um, we had to build a servicing platform to fix all this stuff. And and we started from scratch. And what we did is we ran a bunch of data analytics on it. Uh, Ernst & Young has a great data analytics team. A lot of professionals there, we ran data analytics and figured out what all the problems were. And it was the servicing of loans was horrible. Uh, The original company that had them, Novastar, had completely botched that. So customers were making the wrong payments. Uh, investors into the to the derivative products weren't getting paid correctly. I mean, the whole thing was a complete, absolute mess. It was a complete farce. It was there was no basis whatsoever in reality on these loans, from the person that got the loan to the payment schedules to the returns that the investors got. It was just a bunch of crappy paper that was being sold in the market. And the biggest thing that came out of that was the the regulators and the rating agencies just kind of went along with that. I think they were scared being the ones to call out the big banks and the companies that were doing this. And they, they got a lot of pressure from those guys not to tell the truth. And it just snowballed. Does it worry you now that we just saw this week where Wills Fargo decided to freeze all their personal lines of credits? And then you see that similarity with, well, at least if you look back, it says that basically the banks are doing the same thing back in 2008, starting yeah. from there. So you're starting to see this trend that's starting to be similar. It is. And, and I think what happened was Wells Fargo got into trouble was a year or two ago, I don't remember, for doing liar loans in these personal loans where they weren't uh, properly qualifying them or they were taking loans out in people's name without them knowing that there was a loan in there. I mean, this is really egregious stuff they got in trouble for. And I think the regulators had come down on them 
but I think now what's driving this is perhaps they're not, since they're not able to do it that way, they're not able to find enough good customers to do loans. And there's so much risk in that portfolio, they're shutting it down. And that's a sign that we're near the end of this credit cycle, or we're really sitting at the end because the personal loans is one of the easiest ones to get. It doesn't require the same amount of documentation or uh, income or credit history to say a mortgage loan does. And so when those start to get really tight and companies start to back out, I think we know at this point, we're near the end of this credit cycle. I, th I think too, with the fact that um, obviously the rates were a little bit higher in 2008, I think they were hovering at about five, 6%. Mm -hmm. Now you've got a situation where some economists who actually know what they're doing um, can mm -hmm. see negative interest rates. And the biggest discussion that I've had with people my age, like colleagues and people you know that, that we just hang out with is, yeah, money's so cheap right now. I can go and take out a mortgage at like, you know, two, two percent or prime mm -hmm. plus prime plus two and I'll be okay. And then I always ask them, I'm like, have you thought about, you know, the next five years of that cash flow, how it's going to affect your personal finances? Have you thought about the next 10 years? So mm -hmm. I'm just curious to know from your side, do you think that a house is an asset or a liability? And has the, have the banks really accelerated the, the end of this credit cycle? Well, so a house that you live in is a cost. It's not an investment. Um, they don't go up forever. And I'm speaking from a place in Texas in which our corrections are always smaller than, say, on the coast. We don't have these big bubbles and bursts. We just tend to have a general ebb and flow. But even then, uh, a house is really, it, it, it's a liability. You have to pay for it. There's maintenance. There's so much that goes into running a house that uh, you're never really going to make your money back. And and, and less with the exception, you kind of sell it at the right time. But, but, but that's a personal decision. You're not holding it as an investment. When I ran rental properties, those were an investment because I could calculate out what rent am I going to get? What are my costs? What are my returns? What's the percentage return? Uh, how many of these do I want to take on? It was a portfolio. But I sold out all those in 2018 because I saw the risk in the system increasing. And I was like, I know it could potentially take several months to sell off this portfolio. I don't want to wait until there's a crisis and I sell it now. So I sold out early, but that's okay. I took my money, stuck it in gold and I'm happy. Um, but yeah, the, these, these long-term low rates are an issue because it raises the price of the house. What happens when rates go up? When you go to sell your house, the prices are going to fall. Do you so on the opposite side of that, um, you're going to lose money essentially. And that's why it's not an investment. The, the total cost of a house has to, to be at a point at which people can afford to own it. And if rates go up, prices have to come down. That means you're, you're potentially going to lose on your investment. Do you, do you believe that, we be that we're going to be capable of raising interest rates? Because I mean, if you look at it from a historical context, Japan went to zero interest rate 30 years ago. They never got out of it. Uh, Europe went to, to zero interest rate, what, almost a decade plus. They haven't gone out of it. So yeah. it appears to me that when you, when you look at interest rates, zero interest rate is like quicksand. Once you're, you're stuck. Mm -hmm. And then the only way to get out of it is a, you have to be calm. You have to slowly try to get yourself out of it because that's mm -hmm. how you're, you can't rush it because it always makes things worse. So I feel like we're in a quicksand scenario right now. Yeah. Where we are right now with the most debt ever in human reported history, and I'm talking consumer debt, sovereign national debt and company debt, uh, there's nowhere for that to go. You, you, at some point, you can't issue more debt. You just saturate the ability to pay it off, pay the interest costs. Um, rising interest rates are, would absolutely destroy the ability of the government to pay off its existing debt, consumers to pay off debt, so on and so forth. Um, 
the Fed tried to raise rates in 2018 in the fourth quarter, and that caused a 20% stock market pullback. And ever since, they've been holding rates about steady. It may have reduced them a little bit. So no, they can't. They can't raise rates right now without causing a stock market crash. And the only assets that people really are sort of making money in are real estate and stocks and bonds, you know, aren't really going anywhere. The, the yield on this is ridiculously low. Uh, outside of the only thing that has done well since 2000 is gold and silver, right? But in quote unquote, traditional mainstream investments, if they, if you cause a stock market crash, you're destroying the wealth of most Americans. You're destroying their retirement funds, their pensions, um, and any, anything that they've had an opportunity to save. And if you raise interest rates and you lower housing prices, you destroy their equity. And that's what most people have their money in. They have the stock market and the housing market. So the Fed doesn't necessarily want to come out and raise rates unless they absolutely have to, unless you have some sort of uh, runaway inflation crisis, which I think, by the way, we're starting to get into. So they may have to raise interest rates to deal with inflation. But if they do, they're going to crash. Uh, they're going to crash the savings of Americans. It's going to destroy the middle class. Do you, do you think that there's an issue with the fact that like that perception of thinking very micro and protecting the wealth of a specific generation is marginalizing the future generations? Because then it, it makes it difficult for them to enter the cycles, to compete, to start a business, to buy financial assets. And it yeah. creates this kind of marginalization where you kind of see with the Japanese, the youth, where they, they're, they have no more incentive. They don't, they're not entrepreneurial. They're, lot, they're, stay, they're staying at home. They don't want families. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, that drive has been completely zapped away from that economy. Yeah, because look at where they're going to go, right? There, there aren't, the jobs aren't there. It's hard to have entrepreneurial activities when you don't have enough growth in the economy to, to absorb that. Uh, in Japan right now, it's all just about efficiency and managing the crisis. And we're headed yeah. that way in the U.S. as well, the U.S. and Canada and, and Mexico and North America. And the same thing in the U.S. Um, I think I saw a statistic about a year ago that about 50 percent of the college graduates in the U.S. aren't finding decent jobs. So what are they going to do? They're going to live at home or they're going to work in retail if they can. Of course, COVID, you know, screwed that up even worse because you had destruction of the hospitality industry. So I, I think the younger generations look at this and they're like, man, where do we go with this? Mm. There just isn't a lot of opportunity. I personally think that there is opportunity in small businesses if you find areas in which you can create value. Um, some people are doing that, but the, the job economy is really hurting the younger generation. I completely understand where they're at. And I think that's led to speculation. I think it's led to speculation in cryptos, which are highly volatile and risky assets that keep crashing over and over again. Uh, and that's led people to speculate on things, you know, sort of in desperation to, to try to maintain a certain lifestyle. And it's really tough on the younger generations right now. You know, I have two kids who are in, who are in Gen Z and thank God one of them is an actress and, and luckily she's working. The other's just 12. So he's got a few years to go, but they're looking at not even going to college. And my daughter's a straight A student and said, dad, I don't want to go to college. I don't see the incentive to get a college degree right now. And that's kind of where they're at. And I, and I kind of don't blame them. College has gotten expensive and there's no guarantee you're going to get a position. So why rack up $100,000 in, in loans, you know, and, and not have an opportunity of getting a decent job? I think we're also kind of at an inflection point too, where the educational system, uh, I mean, it's been obsolete, I think for the last 20 years, like, let's be honest. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we're also at this inflection point where, like you said, the younger, the Gen Zs are realizing that 
the opportunity cost to go to college doesn't make any sense. Right. So um, there's probably a massive shift right now. And you did bring up, you know, small businesses. Like I know a bunch of people that live, you know, in Florida, Nevada, Texas um, Mm -hmm. did not go to college, started a business and they're flourishing. My Mm -hmm. biggest concern or my biggest observation is when they talk about the jobs numbers now, it's also archaic because it doesn't take into consideration the new types of businesses that have probably been created. Mm-hmm. Right. So where, where does like, we know how this will end. We just don't know when, but mm-hmm. how do we as a generation kind of just look at this opportunity and then educate people that are below us or younger, I should say, mm-hmm. um, without making it sound like it's so cynical, if that makes sense. Well, I think it's just reality. Um, my parents grew up during the Great Depression. Um, my father was actually in World War II and, and they had a really tough time. But there was a point in which they said, you know, we went through this really tough time, but we're going to rebuild. So it's cyclical. You're going to have your, your winter seasons. You always have them. And every 80 years, you go through a really tough one. So I think the generations now are about to go through one of the toughest ones in the last few generations. But out of that comes absolutely tremendous opportunity because you have the chance to rebuild, rethink, redeploy resources. And it's that following springtime, that following regrowth and rebirth, which will provide most of the opportunity for people. It'll make more millionaires. It'll provide people more freedom. Um, But you just have to go through the rough times first. And unfortunately, that's just the way the economy works. It's cyclical. So people now that are building their own personal skill sets are the ones that are going to flourish. For example, my daughter is not going to college. She's working as an actress, but she's deciding to do graphics design work because it's a really hot industry right now. So she's self-taught and, and uh, there are friends that are helping her out with it, but you don't need a degree to do that. She's already started working in that field as an entrepreneur. So as an actress and as a graphics design artist, she has a couple of different options there. And with the new digital economy, I mean, I think she's going to be fine in the long run, uh, but she had to change her mindset. She had to get out of that old mindset, you know, go to school, go work for a big company. That's no longer the way it's going to be. It's uh, all of the growth coming out of this is going to be from small entrepreneurs and people that are willing to look at the economy and say, okay, how are times changing? How can I provide a value or service mm-hmm. to meet new needs? Uh, that those are the people that are going to leave, you know, the next economic rebound. But so I want to just, on that assumption, I want to connect it back to the classical side of economics and the Austrians. Mm-hmm. That would be on the assumption that moving forward on a long term, that the political landscape and the way we like to abuse the monetary system for social mm-hmm. social desires and political di- desires doesn't thrive, right? That would, in that context, it would assume that post the, the crisis that we kind of learned from this mistake, or at least hopefully we did. And it doesn't re it doesn't keep us anchored down into those old problems. Yeah. I, I think the current political classes are trying desperately to hold on. Uh, some of them getting very desperate. You're seeing news where uh, I think it came out of the UK when police officer said, if we see you in a store buying something, we don't think you need like a pair of shoes, you know, we're going to arrest you. It's gotten almost tyrannical in some places in the world. Communist almost. Yeah, it is very communistic. And it's the old political classes and all of those artifices like the the police and the, the educational systems and political classes trying to hold on. So they see the massive change that's coming. Because I, I'll tell you what, the, the millennials and the Gen Zers aren't going to take a lot of crap. Uh, they're tired of the existing system. They've had it. And they're going to institute great change. And I think the older 
generation, the older political and cultural systems realize that. So there's a battle coming up between, between those. And it's going to be a battle for freedom. It's going to be either, you know, the old systems win and they're more tyrannical and they have more control or the younger pe people develop systems that say, yeah, we're, we're re-engineering everything and we're putting you guys out the pasture. I want to kind of, I want to kind of, yeah, I just want to kind of segue uh, into the next big thing, which is really, and this is the one the millennials just don't seem to love except for Nick, myself, and obviously you, Rob, but mm -hmm. um, you know, the, there, there will be a crisis. Um, I think, I think we can all agree on that. Yeah. Um, gold and silver, yeah. they mm -hmm. seem to have passed the test of time. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there's more utility in silver. Um, I'm invested in a bunch of gold plays. Nick's also invested in a bunch of gold plays right now. How, how do we, how do we communicate it? How do we tell millennials to say, okay, yes, crypto is cool. It mm -hmm. is the future, but you also have to protect yourself in another way. And that's kind of mm -hmm. where gold and silver come in. So like, what's your philosophy on that? And, and how, how should they get started really? So I'll address crypto real quick. I think crypto, it, its origins, I don't think are quite so innocuous as originally stated. I think the deep state had a hand in creating uh, Bitcoin personally based on evidence I've seen. However, I do see people trying to use cryptos to get out of the establishment system. And, and I definitely respect that. Uh, the problem with cryptos and having a tech background, I kind of understand cryptos maybe a little bit deeper than the average person. The cryptos are ethereal. Um, they can disappear, they can go away. So they're good tools to be used, but your ultimate safe haven assets are always gonna be physical things. It's gonna be things like farmland because you can produce food. It's gonna be gold and silver, which have utility. Silver, of course, is used in everything, just about. Uh, gold is more of just that 5,000 year history of being considered true money. It meets Aristotle's definitions of money. Mm -hmm. um, that, that's not gonna change just because we have technology. And like I said, I've been in technology for 25 years. But I still gravitate towards gold because I understand it's natural. It comes out of the ground. There are natural limitations to its creation. The central banks buy it like crazy because they know it's the ultimate safe haven asset. So all the, the very wealthy individuals in society, the central banks, all the, you know, the money creators, the, the corporate barons, the, you know, the big guys are all buying stuff like gold, silver, farmland. You talk about Gates buying a lot of farmland in the U.S., talk about China coming over and buying farmland in the U.S., they know that these physical things ultimately is, is what provides value. Bitcoin and the cryptos only have, you know, essentially their utilities in the blockchain. And so they are a facilitator of movement of value, but they're not the true value. The true value are the physical things that you can actually use every day. And when it gets down to it and your kids are going hungry, you know, what's gonna matter is food, it's going to matter if you have some gold and silver to transact in. For example, um, I interviewed a guy who went through the 2000 uh, currency crisis in Argentina. And he's like, we would have laughed at cryptos. You know, um, nobody was trading cryptos at that time. You're lucky if you had electricity. It was physical goods. It was, to some extent, gold and silver. Um, those were the type and, and your skill sets and, and how you could barter for things. That, that's really what can get you through some tough times. So my, my view on that is I'll never leave gold and silver in terms of the ultimate safe haven asset, even though I may speculate in other things like the cryptocurrencies. So just to tie that in, where do you see, where do you see the narratives in terms of the central banks? And can you talk a little bit about Basel III 
and the whole uh, reclassifying uh, precious metals as a tier one asset and the role that plays in the narrative? So the central bank since 2011 basically have been buying gold uh, hand over fist and they're, they're using it as one of the ultimate assets in the system. The central bank system is always going to put cash first or we're going into the era of central bank digital currencies. All the major central banks have announced this. They're eventually going to get rid of cash. Uh, this is published in you know, mainstream media and they're going to go central bank digital currencies. So they're going to see cash or the CBDCs as their ultimate asset because it's what they create. In other words, that's what they want everybody to use. But they've equated in the new system, uh, Basel III, gold equal to cash uh, under a couple of conditions has to be allocated, meaning it's not a derivative, it's actually physical and it has to be hedged in the futures markets. But long story short, gold has become front and center. And the central banks have bought so much of it, they're going to they're gonna recapitalize their balance sheets based on the back of that gold. And China and Russia have threatened the Western nations to peg the yuan and the ruble to gold, which would have crashed the dollar. Um, and that's what brought about, that's one of the things that brought about the Basel changes. And what the Basel changes are uh, come from the BIS, the Bank for International Settlements. And it's essentially saying we need to shore up the banking system with additional liquidity. One segment of that is called the NSFR or the net stable funding ratio. And it directly addresses a lot of assets, but it also addresses gold. And it basically has brought gold front and center in that system. And what I think is happening is the BIS is trying to capture the world gold trade personally. I don't think it's just about capitalizing the banks. I think they're trying to control it. And the traditional power centers for gold have mostly been London and uh, COMEX in the US. And I think that they're trying to, to, to wrest control of that gold trade away from the Western powers and, and put it into more a global format. Just this week, uh, the, the London regulators came out and said that the LBMA, which is the London gold market, which is the biggest in the world, which has a derivative trade, which would not comply with Basel requirements and cause banks to uh, not be able to claim their unallocated gold as, as an asset. The, the, uh, the powers of B in London have decided they're gonna exempt themselves from the BIS regulations. So what you have now is a power struggle. You have a power struggle between the traditional gold power in London and the BIS, which represents more of a global consortium, which includes Russia and China and Europe and, and some of those other nations. So you're seeing this war in gold going on uh, through these regulatory regimes, Basel, also uh, the OECD. So it, it's, you, you can tell gold's important because they're, at the end of the day, that's what they all go to war over, it's the gold. Do you, you definitely see the demand side increasing on the gold side because of all this uncertainty and all this? Like, I feel like the world is entering a, from looking at from politics, from the way everybody's arguing and fighting about everything. I feel like we're entering a phase where we're also maybe like deglobalizing a little bit, where we mm -hmm. want to sort of close our borders off from certain groups of people. We yeah. want to start. Russia has completely disconnected itself from the U.S. dollar. Uh, mm -hmm. China's buying up gold like crazy. And it, it's like what you're saying back to the whole trying to devalue or destroy the U.S. currency, I feel like there's a play where the world is kind of moving away from the Western culture and yeah. some deglobalization that's occurring, which might put things into a little more uh, turmoil. Yeah, I think that there is a complete reor reorganization geopolitically. Um, you see it with the Belt and Road Initiative, where uh, China is basically giving out loans to about 73% of the world's nations connecting trading routes and things or rebuilding the old Silk Road and Russia's piled onto that building a Siberian road. 
through Siberia and, and the Arctic. And it, they're squaring off against Japan, Australia, and the US and Canada, you know, who are the traditional Western powers. And then what you see is the UK trying to play both sides because the UK doesn't want to lose their financial power. So they're kind of snuggling up to China, but they're also kind of snuggling up to the US trying to see who's going to win out in this battle. A huge geo geopolitical realignment. And that is the fight for resources. You see the fight for commodities. You see the fight for rare earth minerals. You see the fight for copper, zinc, the base minerals that, that in which all um, infrastructure is built upon. You see the, the fight for land. You see the fight for transportation routes. And it's all going on right now. And then the mainstream media in the U.S. is never going to cover this. But yes, people are trying to get out of that old Western Bretton Woods post-World War II system. And the world is realigning. And China and Russia are coming center stage. And the BIS and the IMF, these what people think of traditional Western institutions, because they were set up by the, the banking families in the West, are now shifting east. So there's huge geopolitical realignment going on. The implications of that are going to be astounding for the financial markets, but also for you know, how the U.S. is going to do and how Canada is going to do in the new future. Uh, and I don't think the U.S. is going to be it's not going to be a unipolar model anymore. You're going to have these other countries standing up to the U.S. politically and financially and militarily now uh, since China's rebuilt its, its army and its navy. That was, the, that was the key thing that struck out to me was when, you know, the report, and this obviously hit mainstream news, but when it came out, they said that China has probably got the strongest military um, everyone looked at it like, okay, and it's why? untested. It's an untested and, and, and military. It, exactly. So I was kind of just like, I was reading about it. And I'm just like, wait a minute. Like there's something happening here right now that like you just said, that there's a massive shift that unfortunately by the Western millennials, they don't even care about, yeah. you know, they don't mm -hmm. even see that because they're so focused on the day to day, the micro. And then yeah. I know Nick and I know what's going to happen when, you know, this crash comes, we're going to get a lot of people asking us like, wait, how did you know about this? How did you do this? So it's mm -hmm. almost like, you know, how, how do we tell people without actually coming off again? I'm, I'm using this word again too, because it, our, our generation is a bit soft. Mm -hmm. You know, you say something, you could offend somebody, but then you're actually just speaking the truth. How do you come off as, you know, someone who's not, being an asshole, excuse my French, but mm -hmm. somebody who is kind of just saying, look, like pay attention to this because this is actually really important and it could actually affect your business over the long run. Your family, your pension, your everything. You know, I think throughout history, if you look at it, the majority of people never see the truth until it's, until it's become glaringly obvious. So I realize I'm never going to get through to the majority of people, but I do think crises tend to wake people up. And I think as we get deeper in this crisis, I've actually seen more people wake up. Like all, for example, if I'm going out to have dinner, sitting down at the bar at a table, you can hear people talking about a little bit more about what's going on. And I have more people recognizing me. Like I've never had this before because I have an international audience, but locally I'm starting to get recognized. Oh, you're that guy that has a YouTube channel. I had one guy come up and sit uh, next to me at a bar once and talk for an hour about gold and silver. I just looked over at him and I said, how, how do you, where did you get this about gold and silver? He's like, dude, I watch your channel all the time. <laughs> <laughs> so there is a little bit of an awakening, but it, it honestly depends on who it affects. The lower classes, I think, are much more awake right now than people who may have had it a little bit easier. You know, like you said, 
maybe this generation tends to be a little softer. And, and that's not an insult to the generation. This is true throughout history. Hmm. About every fourth generation has it very, very easy compared with the previous generation. Then they go through the wintertime period. This is conjurative wave theory or cycle theory, if you will. And then they become the hardest and the most realistic. So the millennials and Gen Zers are about to become the guys that are going to start preaching to the rest of the world because they're the ones that are going to live through it. You'll see this metamorphosis and you don't get it until it happens. I mean, you can preach till you're blue in the face, but some people just have to see it and go through it. And I think that's what's going to happen. It's, it's just human nature, really. Like human yeah. nature is always just like, oh, they'll only realize before it's uh, after after it happens or it's too late. But this is the classical. So again, because I fall in love during the COVID thing, like we, since we started this podcast, we started at the beginning of the COVID. And since yeah. the beginning, we started realizing how much like we understood that politics had an impact. But until mm-hmm. you got to really see it like head on, you never truly mm-hmm. understood how much politics impacted the, the financial markets because COVID just brought it right into the open. And then, you know, you start, you start looking at classical economics, you start going down that route of Frederick von Hayek and the Mises Institute and Hoover Institute, Milton Friedman and all those guys. Mm -hmm. And you start realizing classical economics looks at human nature. So it seems to be far more capable at being um, predictive in the way it looks at markets. Rather, when you look at Keynesian economics, which is so like in the, uh, a, p- a point in place analysis, kind of like an accounting that it's very reactive to markets because it doesn't know, it doesn't know how to look ahead. It only lo- knows how to look back. So they have this reactive part that Keynesian seems to apply versus a proactive look that classical economics seems to be able to do because it looks at human nature and humans are what dictate the future dynamics of markets. So, you know, it, it just seems that like Another way to help with the education is if we could shift the way we teach people about markets and economics would be mm-hmm. look, understand human nature, which dictates these trends. There's so much I could say there about the educational system. I'll, I'll, I'll leave your listeners with this. The modern day high school system was set up by John Dewey and J.P. Morgan. Uh, John Dewey was a socialist. He actually has an entire pedagogy or series of writings related to socialism. And he differed from Karl Marx. He said, I don't think we're going to get there through violence. I think we're going to get there through teaching the new newer generations about the wonders of socialism. Hmm. So John Dewey and JP Morgan basically created the national high school system. Prior to that, we, you know, each community was responsible for educating, um, educating, you know, it's young. And once you got the national high school system there, now they have control over what they teach and whoever has control over what you're teaching the newer generations can influence their thought patterns. So, you know, we, we all went through this, but it's become more and more socialist as, as time has gone on. And that's the backdrop in which everybody sees things. So they can't, it's not necessarily the younger generation's fault. They've been propagandized since they were out of the womb and they can't see what's right in front of them because the mainstream media, the educational system aren't teaching them Austrian economics, but this goes back to the nation state cycle. So another resource for your listeners, Sir John Glubb was uh, basically an army officer. He led armies uh, for the crown and also in the middle East to support uh, the crown's interests. And he got to see a lot of what happened around the world. So he wrote this paper in 1971 uh, about these similarities between all these nations throughout history. So he looked at all the major nation states, you know, Greece, Rome, the Assyrians, the British Empire, 
dating back to about 900 BC all the way through the British Empire in 1970. So he looked about 3,000 years. And he said, you know what? About every 250 years, you have this cycle where a new power rises. And within each of these cycles were signposts or milestones, if you will, that said this is the birth of a major new culture. This is the end of a major new culture. What we're going through in the U.S., we're about almost 250 years since the Declaration of Independence, where we established ourselves. So the U.S. is going through this transition where we're at the end of that cycle. And one of the things that happens at the end of that cycle is you have you have a removement of what brought you here. Uh, for example, denigrating males for females, bringing up more femininity, um, more perversion of traditional morals, uh, getting away from hard work and getting into leisure activities. It's the same thing you saw with Caligula, Caligula and Rome, where if, I don't know if you've ever watched that movie Caligula, but it'll open your eyes real quick as to how bad Rome got and how far off track they got. Every nation state goes through that. We're simply going through that in the U.S. It's a repeat of what's happened all the way dating back to the, to the Assyrians. So as, as long as we've had written records, every society goes through these cycles. And we're now in that, that ending of the traditional U.S. state cycle. And, and that really explains it. And all educational systems, media, and any infrastructure system gets corrupted during that time frame by the powers that be. Because as they get to the end of the cycle, they're trying to hold on to it so they become mm -hmm. even more desperate. And that's why you see goofy stuff coming out like uh, critical race theory, which mm. critical race theory is basically racism. Yeah, They're totally. teaching racism in the schools. And yeah. this is the type of stuff that you saw in every nation state throughout history. It's funny, though, about, about critical race theory, because my parents grew up in, in communism. They came from the Soviet Union. So mm -hmm. when you know, I've heard the stories about that stuff. So anytime I see something, particularly in Canada right now, I mean, U.S., it's not so bad yet. But, um, you know, in Canada, just the stuff that the government keeps doing, it's just like there's red flags in my mind that keep going off. And one yeah. of the things that they they taught in the Soviet system was um, it was it was it was it was called I don't think it was called the color revolution, but it was more just like color identity type thing. Yes. Very similar to critical race theory, where it was based on what you had, what you were. And that was it, you know, and obviously what you're, you know whatever your skin color was, although they didn't, mm. not, not, not to sound ridiculous, but in Russia, I mean, it's mostly, you know, you know, white people there. Right. So um, is that going to have an economic impact in the long run or in the short term? And, and how, how, how big of an impact is that going to have? And before I let you answer that question, I'm just seeing it with this woke capitalism, you know, with these massive corporations, they just had pride month. They just had another period of time where they were talking mm. about just, diversity and culture. So like how, how big of an impact is that going to have uh, on the economic scale for, for the long and short term? Well, what happens economically is when you get into this stuff, you start allocating resources to these types of things that don't have a return on investment. Yeah. And so the overall return on investment goes down. So financially, you become weaker and weaker and weaker. At the same time that you have a weak currency, you're laden with debt. And, and again, this happens in every every nation state throughout history. You start to focus on things that don't help you as a society move forward financially and economically. It just weakens your economic state to, to be focusing on these things. And, you know, when this country was set up, it was set up with freedom to be who you are. You shouldn't have to either legislate or propagandize people through the media or through corporate structures, uh, people to, to what to think. And once you get to that point, um, 
it's a control mechanism. It's, it's a way in which the state is trying to maintain control, essentially. And a lot of people don't see it. Uh, they take the propaganda and say, oh, yeah, we have these big problems, but they don't look at history. They don't understand history. You, you must understand history to understand what your government is doing now. If you do not understand history, you will always be a victim of whatever the government wants to, to do to you. Uh, so let's bring that into gold. And where do you yeah. see gold going? What is your forecast? And including silver, if, that, if you have one as well there, where do you but just where do you see it within the short term or medium to long term? So I, I see both going up. I, they're going to be controlled. So the derivative markets are the control for gold and silver. And the state that issues paper currencies and now central bank digital currencies doesn't want gold and silver to rise too fast mm -hmm. because it destroys their credibility. And they've got a new system coming. So they're going to be really trying to tamp down on gold and silver uh, as we go forward. On the other hand, gold, I think, will probably rise more faster initially because um, of its importance to the central banks and because they need to recapitalize their banking system. So they're going to let it run at some point quite a bit. Silver is a little bit of a different animal. It's very industrial and their incentive is to keep silver cheap so that they can build the space economy. They can build, you know, technology, stuff like that. Uh, but there's going to come a breaking point in silver where we're so thin on actual supply at current prices, the price is going to have to go up to 50 bucks to get any of the holders of it to give it up. And I'm talking large institutions like JP Morgan, who are rumored to have a billion ounces. They're not giving it up at 26 bucks. They may not even give it a 50 bucks. You may see a hundred dollar price of silver before any of the current inventories, you know, are, are going to be let out into the market. So I think in the next two years, you'll see substantial rises in price of gold and silver. It's going to be controlled, but it's going to rise. And at some point when we get into the next stage of economic difficulty, I think silver is going to kind of move on its own. It's going to take off into a different level than, than even gold. What's your what's your favorite ways to play that space in terms of allo of getting allo uh, specific allocation towards gold metal? Is it the tangibles? Is it uh, unallocated? Is it gold miners, silver miners? Is it ETFs? Like what are your what do you, what do you typically look you go for? So there is an axiom that when a crisis occurs, if you don't hold it, you don't own it. And what we've seen in some of the storage schemes at Perth Mint, Kitco, is they're unallocated, and when people are trying to take delivery, they can't. Daniel Vagario, who is a CFA, Charter Financial Analyst, and I went over the Perth Mint's publicly audited financial statements and figuring out they were running a fractional reserve gold scheme, meaning they were, they were taking client money, uh, they were short on the gold and silver, they were pretending to have it, and then they were actually loaning out some of that gold and silver to, to other parties. We think the exchanges, to, to bail out the exchanges last year when there was a run of gold and silver, and they're earning interest on it. So they're running like a fractional reserve metals scheme. So you have to be really careful when you're storing it with anybody else. You, there are some companies that do a good job of storing it for you and are actually legitimate, but they're few and far between and you have to do your due diligence. So the best way is to hold it close to you uh, as long as you, you know, can put it in a safe place. Just be careful with storage. Then you, get, you can get into things like numismatics. I'm a big fan of numismatic gold because that market is, is exploding right now. And it's kind of, there's the value of the metal plus the value of the collector, uh, the collectability of the item you're looking at. And that market actually is more stable than the regular gold and silver market. The fluctuations in price are much smaller. You know, a lot of people don't know that, but that's where the rich store their money in, in gold and silver. They store it in the collectible, the numismatic market. 
Um, so I, I go there next. I think that's the next most stable form other than bullion. And then the third way I get into some of the stocks, the stocks are a leverage play, but they're highly risky. So you have to be careful there. And we do offer an investment service on the website that risk ranks companies. I, I'm not a financial advisor. I don't tell people what to invest in, but I do a risk ranking to mm -hmm. tell you what you're getting into as an educational piece. So the stocks are good there. Right now, I'd stay out of any unallocated scheme, any certificate, any sort of paper derivative. Don't invest in GLD or SLV, the ETFs. Mm. If you read the prospectuses, they tell you they don't have to have the gold and silver. And you can never redeem it unless you have like 50,000 shares, which the line share people don't. So stay away from any type of derivative paper or unallocated product. Go for the physical first. Go for the numismatics. Maybe do some mining stocks. My allocation is about 40% numismatics, 40% bullion, and the rest is a mix of probably some sort of uh, stock investment. Interesting. So you're, you're really, you're really heavy in, the, in that space right now and in the precious metals. hundred percent. My trading background, I used to day trade currency. So if you want to get into something that's even more speculative than Bitcoin, go day trade currencies where you're, you're worried about the minute chart on a currency uh, causing you to have a margin call. I mean, that's a high stress uh, environment. You're, 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 you're trading the dollar against the uh, pound and it's a very leveraged environment. So when I was younger, I used to play around with a lot of stuff. And as I've gotten older, I've realized cycle investing is better. Yeah, you can make a killing on Bitcoin or whatever. Most of the time you're going to lose your money because you're not going to know when to get out. And there's so much counterparty risk on the other side of that trade. Somebody else is giving you their risk. I'd much, much rather get into assets like gold and silver that don't have a lot of counterparty risk and just play the asset cycle. And my studies show that if you play the asset cycle long term, like over a 20 year period, you're going to do better anyway. But that's the macro, but that's where you have the, the difference between a macro thesis versus a micro thesis. Yeah. You can trade in and out of micro thesis, but remember, you don't ever have all of the information and the bigger guys always have more than you do. So you have to be careful. It's much uh, more Bitcoin, hard. For example, uh, Bitcoin, what's been happening in Bitcoin, you can see this on flows. You can go to a website and see the flows in Bitcoin. Big parties are buying up a lot of Bitcoin, jacking the price up and selling to the small parties. Okay. That's a traditional pump and dump. And it's happened in Bitcoin since its inception. So if you're going to get into Bitcoin, it's fine if you want to speculate. But just remember, the big guys are the ones selling to you. They have more information than you do, and they can move the market faster than you can. So they can determine price. So you just have to be careful. Yeah, I think, too, with the with crypto as, as, as in general, I mean, it's a psychology game. And if you're going to try mm. and win that game, you got to think like the institutions. And that's yeah. that could take years. I mean, depending on how long you study and, and your priorities. But um, it certainly is uh, alarming, too. I mean... You know, there's this app called Clubhouse where people are talking about and, you know, Bitcoin, Bitcoin, it's going to a million, it's going to this. And I'm just thinking, I saw this is absolute lunacy. Like it's getting to a point where it's ridiculous. And there was this one rumor, you know, these guys were talking and there was a professional trader who had been on the Chicago options floor in that chat. And then there was a mm -hmm. kid who supposedly made $22 million off Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. And his response was like, where do you think Bitcoin is going? This guy made $22 million. And he's like, yo, it's going to the moon. You know, like that's, that's mm -hmm. just the, the lingo that's being talked about. And the professional trader says, what makes you think it's going to go to the moon? And he's like, what do you mean? It's just going to continue to go up. And he's just like, well, what makes you think that way? Like, why, why are you thinking like that? So anyway, the next month, Bitcoin crashed. We know mm -hmm. what happened. So it, it's just an interesting psychology breakdown that kind of happened. So um, you know, gold and silver, I mean, it's just not getting a lot of love right now for, for the short term. Um, one last question before, you know, because we're coming up on an hour here. 
Um, the biggest challenge right now um, with the market is just the level of uncertainty and the level of risk mm -hmm. too. So, um, you know, you did mention the asset allocation part, but you know, for somebody that's like really just starting off, um, where, where should they be going right now? Like what, what should they be doing and how should they be managing risk instead of going all in on, on things like Bitcoin or other, or Dogecoin yeah. for that matter? <laughs> yeah, I'm a classically trained in risk. So I have a technology background, but I did a lot of risk work as well. Um, and especially the big four KPMG and EY. So what you have to do is remove risk factors, um, get rid of as much counterparty risk as you can, meaning always figure out who's on either side of a trade and don't take on somebody else's risk. If it seems easy and too good to be true, more than likely somebody's trying to get you to take their risk in the mortgage market, in the cryptocurrency market and the stock market, whatever market. Be aware who's on the other side of that trade. It's not a one-side trade. If you're buying Bitcoin, somebody's selling. Who's selling and why? You need to understand this. Okay, same thing uh, if you're getting into ETF funds or whatever. Who's selling and why? You've got to know that. Get rid of as much counterparty risk as you can and understand what you're getting into. The other thing is stay away from common terms like 401k and pension. Those are just, those are just wrappers around an investment. So, oh, hey, I have a 401k. Okay, what is a 401k? It's a tax advantaged investment. But it also has disadvantages. You can't redeem till you're 59. You're stuck in it. You have limited fund access. And the funds that you get into are the ones that tend to be, you know, the biggest bubbles. So is having a 401k good if you're investing in a stock market that's at all time highs, it's bound to crash because it always has every four to 10 years in history? You know, get... get Educate yourself on what's actually the investment vehicle, who owns it, who's selling it, who's buying it. That's going to tell you what you want to be in. Gold and silver are going to have their cycle and that's going to be something else. We may come back to real estate and understanding that, understanding the cycles and understanding what the risks are is, is the best way to invest. And just to just to bring it to one last thing is, do you have any other favorite investment theses that you like? Any other plays or any other opportunities other than precious metals specifically that you that you might see as opportunities? What I'm investing now is more in people and businesses and ideas. So I've become sort of a, a very small venture capitalist. When I see somebody that has a great idea, I'll invest either my money or time in them. For example, Kirian Von Hest, who goes by Dezo on a Twitter and uh, he's on Twitch. He's a gamer who has developed what he thinks is a real next generation crypto that actually has a solid backing. And I'm one of the few that's read his books. He hasn't published them yet, but I think he has a really good idea and act to use the cryptocurrency model, but actually have real established value. And it's kind of a brilliant idea. And I want to see how that plays out. So I'll be supporting him. And I do things like that. I support people and their ideas because it, at this point in my life, I have enough money, honestly, it's not about the Benjamins with me. It's more about developing ideas and helping people. And that type of return I get comes in a couple of ways. I may get money from that, but I may get the satisfaction of knowing that I've helped perpetuate a system which is going to help people earn their individual freedom and help us develop new ways of doing things that will help society. So, you know, outside of my gold, silver, farmland and cash holdings, that's really what I'm doing. That's awesome. Cool. No, it's yeah. good. It's good. And, you know, to, to you know, you've, You've kind of did, you've, you've done your time in the trenches type thing. And it's really good to, mm -hmm. to hear somebody want to give back to, to, you know, the, the younger generation. I, 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 yeah. That's what it's all about. Right. At the end I, of the day. Yeah. 
Yeah, I call I, I say capitalism is like the way I define capitalism is it's a collaborative dynamic system where mm -hmm. the more people collaborate, the more efficient it becomes, the less people collaborate, the less efficient it becomes. So it's yeah. nice when people want to focus on collaboration and giving back into the ecosystem because it fuels a positive uh, dynamic. That is what real capitalism is supposed to be meant on because you don't want coercion. You don't want, you want people to agree and work together and create value for each other. And that only works in a collaborative ecosystem. It does. And a rising tide raises all ships. So if you do things that are beyond yourself, it will eventually come back to you. I think, I think there's, there's some law in the universe uh, about what you, you give eventually comes back. to Yes. You well. the, the law of equivalent exchange actually from in physics, where it, the input is the output karma, you know, it's equivalent mm -hmm. exchange, what you put into it, you will always get back karma. Mm -hmm. You know, so I entirely agree with you on that one. Rob, where can they, uh, where can our listeners find you just so we can, uh, they, they know where to go. There's a lot of wisdom here. They can go to goldsilverpros.com. They can find Gold Silver Pros on Twitter, LinkedIn, and YouTube as well. And we also uh, are going to be starting a Telegram channel here pretty soon for those awesome. that uh, like the apps. Cool. That's awesome. Anyway, we'll look forward to, the, to, the, to that. And we'll definitely include that in the uh, episode description. Mm -hmm. But listen, Rob, thank you so much for yeah, coming on. Fine. This was a very insightful conversation. I know that there's a lot of stuff happening right now. And we appreciate your you coming on and sharing your wisdom with us today. Thank yeah, you. it's my pleasure. You know, since you guys invited me on, I found, I found your podcast. I've been listening to it a lot. You guys do a great job and I want to thank you for doing that for the positive contribution awesome. in the community. Thank you. Thanks so much. Yeah, I really appreciate that. Anyway, and we're thanks. definitely going to have you on again. Yeah. <laughs> Fabulous. Would love to. Awesome. You have to get me on with Dezo so we can talk crypto. That'll be a fun. Okay. I would, I honestly would love that because that's something, one thing about crypto is everybody always talks about the positives, but no one talks about either the flaws, the risks, or how mm -hmm. can it go in a different route? Mm -hmm. So a hundred percent, I would love that. Have that conversation. Okay. All right, guys. Well, thanks for listening. This is a great conversation. Check out our newsletter. The episode will be out soon uh, and we'll be back next time on the new gen mindset podcast. Thanks guys.